Welcome to Snazzy Stories. Put some pepper in thy step and lend an ear to the terrific tales of the past. Hey, welcome to Snazzy Stories. If you'd like to keep the storytelling alive, please go to patreon.com slash snazzystories and donate to my storytelling adventure. Also subscribe to Snazzy Stories on iTunes, Spotify, many podcast apps, or go to snazzystories.com and leave an awesome review. The state of Utah seems to be synonymous with Mormons and polygamy. Even in pop culture, men in Utah are joked about by being asked about how many wives they have. Polygamy in Utah is still practiced today by different religious groups. But the original group, or OGs if you will, to bring polygamy to the Utah Territory was indeed the Mormon people. Polygamy was practiced as somewhat closeted before Mormons emigrated to the West, and it was not until 1852, five years after the first group of Mormons arrived in the Salt Lake Valley, that polygamy was more openly practiced by the religion. The principle of polygamy was given to the Mormon people in 1843 by their leader Joseph Smith. However, Joseph Smith seemed to have received the revelation earlier than 1843 about the polygamous lifestyle, more likely in the 1830s because he married his first polygamist wife in 1835, much to the frustration of his first wife, Emma Smith. But as mentioned, the polygamous lifestyle was not widely or openly practiced until the Mormons reached the Utah Territory. But even so, it was not as widely practiced as some might think. Also, polygamy had a positive effect on the women of Utah that sometimes is not talked about. But the nature of this lifestyle posited some negative effects on people and relationships as well. The Mormon people tried to radically reform the ideas of marriage very early on in American history. Some might even call them progressive when attempting to redefine marriage and relationship lifestyles. Even though the Mormon people were doing so not out of the sense of reformation or progressivism, but out of a sense of religious duty. But for whatever the reason, the Mormon people were ahead of their time when they began this alternative lifestyle that was incredibly different from the typical American family. And polygamy became what the Mormons believed to be the ideal family in their culture in the American West. The impact of polygamy on Utah women might be surprising in some ways, mostly because the lifestyle of polygamy gave many women a new sense of freedom and independence, which monogamy at the time did not afford to women in the United States. Although outsiders looking into the Mormon culture despised polygamy, believing it to be a, quote, relic of barbarism, a system of institutionalized lust that degraded women, destroyed the unity of the family, and led inevitably to unhappiness, debaucheries, and excesses of all kinds, unquote. The Mormon people defended polygamy constantly from outside sources. Even those Mormons who chose not to live such an alternative lifestyle defended polygamy just as they did their faith, because the two were very much tied together. However, this did not mean that the polygamous lifestyle was without its problems, and the Mormon people obviously knew it and recognized it, because they were the ones actually living it. There are many stories of Mormons' experiences in polygamy, 
and here is one experience about Franklin and Jane Richards. Franklin Richards and Jane Snyder met each other through church involvement, began courting, and then were married in December of 1842. Jane was the first wife of Franklin. However, Franklin was a prominent member of the LDS Church, and he soon learned about the revelation of polygamous marriage. Eight months after his marriage to Jane, he spoke with her about entering into the polygamous lifestyle. Jane did not like the idea, and to say she was deeply hurt was an understatement. It wasn't until three years later that Franklin married his second wife, Elizabeth McFate. Jane was still not a fan of the idea, but she and Elizabeth were able to get along. Elizabeth lived in the upper part of the house, and Jane lived in the lower part of the house. They shared the chores of cooking and washing. When the Mormons were driven from Nauvoo, these two women took on the journey west all on their own. Their husband, Franklin, had been called on a mission, and thus the responsibility of their move rested solely on these two women. Jane lost two of her children along the way, and she was very sick during the journey. She said, quote, I only lived because I could not die, unquote. Jane and Elizabeth made it to Salt Lake City, and eventually their husband made it to Utah after his mission. However, in 1849, he was appointed as one of Brigham Young's 12 apostles and was called to take up the calling of a mission in England. Before he left on his mission, he married another woman named Sarah Snyder, Jane's sister, and then he married Charlotte Fox. For the next 15 years, Franklin Richards was on constant missions and callings from church headquarters, which pulled him away from his many wives and children. These women were all on their own in order to find better living conditions. Jane was able to establish a house in Ogden, Utah, and his other wives made their lives better in other Utah cities. Jane was very active in the women's organization of the LDS Church called the Relief Society. She also played a very active role in national women's organizations. In 1880, Jane Richards gave an interview about polygamy to Mrs. Hubert Howe Bancroft, as the Bancrofts were collecting information on polygamy in, Utah, in the Utah Territory. During the interview, Jane addressed the hurt that she felt when her husband initially brought the idea of polygamy to her, and how unhappy she was when he married three new wives in Utah. Throughout the interview, she discussed that she was able to accept polygamy just as other Mormon women because she convinced herself that it was essential to her salvation and her husband's salvation. According to Mrs. Bancroft during the interview, Mrs. Bancroft believed that Jane Richards was trying to assure herself that her husband was motivated by a sense of religious duty and not by any lustful desires. After her interview, Mrs. Bancroft's perspective was that polygamy was, quote, as a religious duty and schooled themselves to bear its discomforts as a sort of religious penance and that it was a matter of pride to make everybody believe they lived happily and to persuade themselves and others that it was not a trial and that a life, long life of such discipline makes the trial lighter, unquote. It does seem to be that with many stories of other polygamous Mormons, the only thing to bring thousands of people into this lifestyle was indeed religious commitment for both women and men alike. A Mormon polygamous wife, Annie Clark Tanner, 
who also grew up in a polygamous household, said, quote, I'm sure that women would never have accepted polygamy had it not been for their religion. No woman ever consented to its practice without great sacrifice on her part. There is something so sacred about the relationship of husband and wife that a third party in the family is sure to disturb the confidence and security that formerly existed. The principle of celestial marriage was considered the capstone in the Mormon religion. Only by practicing it would the highest exaltation in the celestial kingdom of God be obtained. According to the founders of the Mormon church, the great purpose of this life is to prepare for the celestial kingdom in the world to come. The tremendous sacrifices of the Mormon people can only be understood if one keeps on mind this basic otherworldly philosophy. Unquote. Franklin Richards was typical of someone who had a higher religious status by being gone all the time. Therefore, when he was around, he had to do his best to not favor one wife over the other and work hard to manage his family time. But ultimately, according to Jane, his sincere efforts still often led to frustration and heartache. Not all Mormon men married as many women as Franklin Richards, so their time wasn't as far stretched. Most Mormon men in the Utah Territory who were living in polygamy had two wives. Looking at a sample survey of more than 6,000 prominent Utah Mormon families, at most 15 to 20 percent were polygamous. And overall in the Utah Territory, the majority of LDS never lived the principle of polygamy. In 1870 in St. George, 30 percent lived in polygamy and 40 percent in 1880. But in South Weber, only 5% lived in polygamy in 1880. Growing up LDS in Utah, I always heard one specific reason as to why the Mormon church practiced polygamy, and that was that women outnumbered the men. But in reality, at no time in the Utah Territory was that ever the case. An example of a Mormon family who did not live the polygamous lifestyle were Rachel and William Atkin. They settled Atkinville on the outskirts of St. George in 1877. The Atkins would feed and house Mormon friends and travelers. After the Anti-Polygamy Edmonds-Tucker Act was passed in 1887 by the United States government, which sent federal marshals to the Utah Territory to hunt down polygamists, or cohabs as they were called, William and Rachel Atkin would hide Mormons, including the president of the LDS Church, Wilford Woodruff, who were practicing polygamy, in their home. One instance occurred when the Atkins had guests in their home for dinner. Rachel was in the kitchen working on dinner, and William was speaking with the men who had come to their home. The men were teasing William for not being a polygamist, and they were trying to convince him to become a part of the lifestyle. All of a sudden, there was a loud crash in the kitchen. As the men turned toward the loud sound, they saw Rachel standing in the doorway of the kitchen. She addressed the men sitting at their table, telling them she would feed them and hide them, but to stop giving her husband a difficult time because he wasn't a polygamist. She said, William can marry another woman, but as soon as the second wife moves in, the first wife moves out. Even though Utah and polygamy seem to be thought of as prominent in the Utah Territory, not as many Mormons lived this lifestyle as often thought. Sometimes we tend to place our own emotions and feelings onto other people's situations. 
which can be very helpful at times in that it can produce empathy to help us understand other people. However, when people from the outside began looking into polygamy in the Utah Territory, they felt that they themselves would have felt very degraded by being a polygamous wife, which, honestly, that is how I would have felt too. And as mentioned with the story of Jane Richards, she admits to feeling hurt by her husband wanting to have additional wives. But not all women felt degraded with the practice of polygamy. One aspect to look at is that Jane was the first wife who went into her marriage without any idea that polygamy would be on the table in her marriage. It seemed to be that women who got married expecting a monogamous marriage and then jumping into the polygamous lifestyle struggled more than the women who were already marrying into a polygamous lifestyle. But that isn't to say that the blanket statement that first wives were always completely against it is true. Sometimes first wives would encourage the husband to marry another wife. Again, going back to the religious pull on this marriage concept, plural marriage could give women a sense of pride and significance within the Mormon community. Polygamous women's primary focus of their lives were their children. And their focus never had to be shared with their husband because polygamous husbands were not necessarily around very much. In fact, it was advocated by some polygamous wives to not focus on the husband-wife relationship. Heber C. Kimball's first wife gave advice to an unhappy plural wife. Her advice was that, quote, her comfort must be in her children, that she must lay aside all interest or thought in what her husband was doing while he was away from her, and simply be as pleased to see him when he came in as she was pleased to see any friend, unquote. It seemed that in order for women living in polygamy to function well, there needed to be an emotional distance between herself and her husband, but that wives would be able to get emotional support in times of distress from other women, including their sister wives. Looking at the families who did live this religious lifestyle, there wasn't really any established rules on how it should be done. Each family adapted to their own needs of their own family whether wives lived together or separately. However, more often than not, wives during this time lived in separate houses and sometimes even separate cities, and their prime responsibility was their own children, which ultimately led women to develop self-reliance and independence. Jane Richards recalled of her husband that he, quote, was away so much she learned to live comfortably without him as she would tell him and tease him sometimes. And even now he is away two-thirds of the time as she is the only wife in Ogden, so that she often forgets when he's home. And she even sat down in mills forgetting to call him. She says she always feels very badly about it when it happens, but that he was more necessary to her in her early life. Unquote. Mary Horn stated that polygamy got her away from being, quote, so bound and so united to her husband that she could do nothing without him. She became freer and can do herself individually things she could never have attempted before and work out her individual character as separate from her husband. Unquote. Martha Hughes Cannon, who was a fourth polygamist wife and the first woman state senator in the United States, noted, quote, If her husband has four wives, 
she has three weeks of freedom every single month, unquote. Women became independently capable of running the households, farms, and businesses on their own. In polygamous marriages, men and women seemed to hold equal financial management, whereas monogamous marriages at the time, men held greater control. By the late 19th century, there was a growing class of women professionals. Many were plural wives. At this time in Utah, women dominated the medical field and many were writers and teachers. Utah women also could vote earlier than women in the United States. The right to vote in Utah was given to women in 1870, and many polygamous women joined the national suffrage movement traveling across the United States, giving speeches on women's right to vote. And many of these Utah women were indeed polygamists, defending their right to their religious lifestyle, and at the same time, showing people outside their religion that they were not oppressed women, but in fact, very independent and highly progressive. As early as 1854, two years after people in the Utah Territory began their alternative lifestyle more openly, the Republican Party termed polygamy and slavery as, quote, the twin relics of barbarism, unquote. Anti-polygamy acts followed in 1862 when the United States Congress passed the Morale Act. This law prohibited plural marriage in the territories and restricted LDS church ownership stating that no church in the territories could own more than $50,000 worth of property. But in 1862, the United States was in the midst of the Civil War. Therefore, this law was never enforced. The LDS people believed polygamy was protected under religious freedom in the Bill of Rights in the United States Constitution. This was indeed tested by Brigham Young's private secretary, George Reynolds, a polygamist. The court case, Reynolds versus the United States, made its way up to the Supreme Court in 1879. The Supreme Court's ruling devastated the Mormon people. They thought for sure the Constitution was on their side. The ruling upheld the Morrell Act and said, quote, Laws are made for the government of actions, and while they cannot interfere with mere religious belief and opinion, they may with practices, unquote. In short, you can believe in polygamy all you want, but you cannot practice it. Twenty years after the Morrell Act was initially passed, another anti-polygamy law was passed in 1882. This was called the Edmonds Act. This, again, stated that polygamy was a felony and was punishable by five years of imprisonment and a $500 fine. Polygamists were also now not permitted to serve on a jury, hold political office, or vote in elections. However, this law still did not stop polygamy in Utah. Five years later, the Edmonds-Tucker Act was passed in 1887. This law took away the right to vote from all Utah women and polygamous men. It got rid of the Perpetual Emigration Fund, which funded members of the church to come to Utah from Europe. This act also dissolved the Nauvoo Legion Militia and confiscated property of the LDS Church, except for churches used only for worship and burial grounds. After the Edmonds-Tucker Act was passed, many of the church leaders and members living in polygamy went into hiding, including the church president at the time, Wilford Woodruff, as previously mentioned. Federal officials were sent to Utah to conduct cohab hunts. Cohab was a nickname given to those who cohabitated in plural marriages. 
Some non-Mormons became informants and were paid an average of $20 for each polygamist arrested. As the desire for Utah became a state grew, so did the issue of polygamy. Polygamy had to be given up in order for Utah to achieve statehood. Therefore, on September 26, 1890, Wilford Woodruff released his famous manifesto to end polygamy in the LDS Church. President Woodruff stated, quote, I publicly declare that my advice to the Latter-day Saints is to refrain from contracting any marriages forbidden by the law of the land, unquote. This statement may have been meant for polygamy to end, but in reality it was a vague statement. People were not sure if that applied to existing marriages or just for not performing new plural marriages. Some men left their plural wives and others interpreted it as not marrying any new wives. However, it seems that most continue to live as polygamists in their current marriages. For those who wanted to continue to marry more wives, some went to Mexico and Canada to perform those marriages, and a few still continue to be performed in the United States in secret. However, in what was termed as the Second Manifesto on April 7, 1904, President of the LDS Church, Joseph F. Smith, included provisions for the church to excommunicate members who were continuing to perform plural marriages. Mattias Cowley and John W. Taylor were both apostles in the LDS Church and were still performing and advocating new plural marriages, even after the Second Manifesto in 1904. Therefore, Cowley was disfellowshipped and Taylor was excommunicated from their religion. A new church policy came about in 1910, which stated that those members who were involved in plural marriages after 1904 were excommunicated and those married between 1890 and 1904 were not to have church callings where other members would have to sustain them. There were groups who broke off from the LDS Church because they still believed that polygamy was an integral part of their religion. For example, the fundamentalist LDS Church and also other polygamous groups have formed in Utah as well, such as the Apostolic United Brethren and the Kingston Group or Latter-day Church of Christ. Polygamy has been an issue for Utah since 1852 and still currently has cohabitation laws or anti-polygamy laws. However, just recently in 2020, the Utah State Legislature changed polygamy to a misdemeanor, not a felony. Polygamy in the Utah Territory has so many facets to it and should be looked at for not only the difficulty it posed to the people living in it, but also the freedoms it ultimately gave a lot of women. Also, the way in which the Mormons tried to drastically redefine marriage in the 19th century and make it work to some degree was quite a feat. Thank you for listening to Snazzy Stories. Come back again where everyone has a story.